From the colorectal surgery practice at the Brigham Women's Hospital and associated with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, welcome to the Colon and Rectal Cancer Center podcast. This is Ronald Blade. And this is Jeffrey Meyerhart. Join us as we take you through real cases and real decisions that we make every day in the care of colon and rectal cancer patients. This is Ronald Blade, Surgeon and Section Chief for the Colorectal Practice at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. This is Episode 3, and on today's podcast, Jeff and I explore the issues of inflammatory bowel disease and colorectal cancer. Helping us explore this case are two colleagues from the Brigham and Women's Hospital. The first is Josh Korsnick. Josh is a gastroenterologist who is Clinical Director of our Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center. The second is Dr. Harvey Mammon. Harvey is a radiation therapist and clinical director of the Department of Radiation Oncology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Before we get into the podcast, though, I want to mention a resource that we have set up for listeners, DanaFarberPodcast.com, the show's online hub. On this site, listeners can get more information on the topics we discuss, and they can access articles and studies that we mention in the episodes. They can also ask us questions, have a suggestion about a topic or a guest, or if you disagree with our analysis, we want to hear from you. And we'll feature some of your comments in each new episode of the podcast. Again, go to DanaFarberPodcast.com. Jeff and I would love to know your thoughts, comments, and questions about the show. Now, in the first segment of Episode 3, you will hear from Josh Korsnick and I as we discuss a case that we shared together patient had ulcerative colitis and then developed a colorectal cancer. So good afternoon, Josh. Uh, We're here to talk about one of our patients that we share, uh, a person that uh, you saw for ulcerative colitis, who then uh, developed a uh, upper rectal cancer. So why don't you tell us a little about our, our mutual patient uh, and when he came to see you and some of the guidelines that you would normally recommend to a person who's uh, in his 40s and uh, has had uh, colitis for short period of time, medium period of time, and a long period of time. So this is all. My name is Josh Korsnick. I'm director of the IBD Center at the Brigham. And we shared a gentleman who was 43. He was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis seven years earlier when we had met him, he had had a poorly controlled disease for a while and probably had symptoms for at least several years before his diagnosis was made. Uh, he tried uh, some of the mild medications such as uh, mesalamine, azacol, colazole, without any real response and thought perhaps he had a paradoxical response to some that made it worse. Um, eventually he uh, saw consultation elsewhere before seeing us uh, with some steroid enemas and prednisone, eventually got to Imuran with a little response, and then went on to Remicade. Uh, it wasn't clear whether he responded, maybe a partial response, but he had interruption because of insurance issues, so wasn't on it. And he then went on to Humira, I think more because of insurance issues, developed some shingles while on that, he came off it and uh, saw us. He was quite symptomatic. At that point, he was having about 10 stools in a day. It was persisting with his symptoms, not really just feeling like uh, he could 
he could put up with it, and this is what he was dealing with. So we were discussing various alternative therapies, possibly Antivio or Vedalizumab, which was uh, just becoming available around then, or about to be, when he got uh, much more uh, severe symptoms and was hospitalized at that point. Now, he, I, I actually had seen me for a, a pouch back in 2008 because of steroid dependency and gotten better uh, and gotten off the steroids. When a person comes in after uh, seven or eight years and it's a new patient to you, what's your threshold for doing, let's say, a colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy? So there's a question of, of whether to do the colonoscopy just to uh, stage the disease, understand how much inflammation is going on and get a sense of, of the lay of the land. Um, that's uh, the basic issue. If there's significant inflammation going on, we prefer to defer the surveillance colonoscopy because the inflammation makes it a little bit harder to interpret dysplasia or not. So if we are going to institute a new therapy and we have a good sense or they've had a recent colonoscopy, we'll defer for surveillance for a little bit. Uh, if they're in good control, they've, they haven't had symptoms for a while, they've had disease for eight or nine years as this gentleman had, we would plan on doing a surveillance colonoscopy relatively soon. In the first 10 years, we tend to do it every three years, roughly. The risk doesn't really go up until someone's had the disease for eight to 10 years, uh, particularly if it's pan colitis. After 10 years, we tend to do a surveillance colonoscopy every, every other year, and then after 20 years, every year. But we really try to start stratifying people at higher risk and lower risk. So people at higher risk are those who have longstanding disease, have earlier onset, disease, have a family history of colon cancer, uh, and also have a, a history of primary sclerosis and cholangitis. Probably the most important risk factor is primary sclerosis and cholangitis uh, and family history, but above all those things, it's active inflammation. So if someone's had poorly controlled disease or their last colonoscopy showed active disease, those people need to be followed up more closely. Uh, we haven't gotten quite as uh, relaxed as the British guidelines, but the British guidelines suggest that if someone has uh, no inflammation on the previous biopsies, to go as, as long as five years before doing another colonoscopy. So we're hopefully getting to a point where we can stratify a little bit better rather than putting people in these very large baskets. But he had had one two years previously, our patient that we're discussing. There was no dysplasia or cancer at that point. At that point, the thought was he had had disease for maybe about five, six years. And then he came into uh, the hospital because of worsening disease. And so then he had a colonoscopy, and uh, uh, one of your colleagues did it, and uh, sort of a shout-out to Dr. Tomzak because he was able to just see a, quote, funny area, uh, unquote, biopsied it, and it came back as cancer, not dysplasia, but, but cancer. Uh, and it was in the upper rectum. What in case a person has uh, a stricture in colitis? What do you feel about, um, even if you biopsy around the stricture and it comes back negative, what's your concern with the stricture? Not for Crohn's colitis, but for ulcerative colitis. Right, so it's very ominous, and uh, the best data, and there's not a lot of good data on this, but suggests that a stricture in ulcerative colitis, particularly on the left side, may be as much as 30% risk of having cancer, even if you can't identify the uh, cancer on biopsy. So we will debate about it, get imaging, 
get a lot of biopsies, and even at the end of the day, after we've done everything, if we still can't find cancer, but there's a significant stricture there, we will lean towards uh, suggesting probably a resection. Mm -hmm. Maybe an ileorectal anastomosis, if at that point uh, things aren't identified as dysplasia, but giving a sort of benefit of the doubt, but still wanting to get that out. So let's say so that this patient had his surgery and uh, we avoided the radiation because it was in the upper rectum because the combination of uh, radiation and ulcerative can be, uh, right. many patients can't tolerate it without diversion. And he's finished his chemotherapy and he's done very well. Um, what about a patient with uh, Crohn's disease uh, with, with long-standing inflammation. What are the recommendations for a patient with Crohn's, Crohn's colitis? So for Crohn's colitis, we'll follow the same recommendations if more than about a third of their colon is involved with inflammation. So if it's just a, the cecum and ileal disease otherwise, we won't put someone through routine surveillance. Uh, but if there's more than a third, if it's the whole right side and some of the transverse or the left side, then we'll follow the same recommendations for surveillance as we do in ulcerative colitis. Great. Anything else you want to add uh, for the uh, both the oncologist and the gastroenterologist out there in terms of this dysplasia, cancer risk uh, with colitis? Yeah, I think it's important to, to stratify. I think it's important also in terms of to keep in mind when, when doing surveillance, we sample from the entire colon. Uh, the, the sort of golden number is about 33 biopsies throughout to get at least 90% certainty of, of uh, selecting, of, of finding the dysplasia. We also do use chromo uh, increasingly, so whether chromo should be used universally is a question mark, but I think that certainly if there's somebody who's got a lot of pseudopolyps, which is also a risk factor for development of dysplasia, uh, we'll use chromo in that setting to help uh, sort things out a little better, and people who are at higher risk, long-standing disease. One last question. So we have patients with dysplasia in the left colon, maybe sigmoid colon, we then, before surgery, they are recommended to have a uh, J pouch. We do biopsies of the rectum, particularly the last half inch or two centimeters to make sure there's no dysplasia in that area. Let's say they don't have dysplasia and they go on for their J pouch. They're surveyed every one to two years. If they get dysplasia in that little residual anorectal strip, and we've, we've shared a, a yeah. patient like this, what, what should we do? So I, there aren't too many options really at that point. Yeah. So it, it's a question of whether if it's clearly dysplasia and there's, that's con confirmed by a second uh, pathologist, then I think removing that entire, the, the remaining section of, of uh, colon is, is recommended. Yeah, yeah, so that they convert, we remove the pouch, we take out the anorectal strip and the anus and they get an endoleostomy. That's right, it's fairly uncommon and those people who are at the greatest risk are people who had uh, colectomies for their ulcerative colitis because they had dysplasia. Right. But it can happen in, in other people as well, but those, those other people are at high, highest risk. Well, thanks very much, it's been great. Great, my pleasure, thank you. Now we will hear from Dr. Harvey Mammon. Harvey discusses certain aspects of the treatment of this case, including radiation therapy in patients with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. So in prostate cancer, where we treat to a much higher dose, uh, a relatively common complication is rectal bleeding. 
that sometimes requires, for example, argon plasma coagulation to stop. We virtually never see that in our rectal cancer patients because the dose is so much lower. Right. What we do see in rectal cancer, because the field is larger that we don't see in prostate, is radiation enteritis. And that varies on uh, around many, uh, many factors. The simplest is how much small intestine is in the radiation field, and there are several things we do to minimize that. We treat patients prone, which helps the small bowel fall forward. We ask patients to come in with a full bladder, which helps push the, the small intestine out of the field, and, and those maneuvers are, are definitely helpful, but there's still going to be some patients that have bowel in the field. Um, but then there are also individual factors, because I've had patients that I was very worried about with a lot of bowel in the field who've gone through the treatment with no symptoms whatsoever, and other patients who have much less bowel in the field who have pretty significant diarrhea and enteritis symptoms. So it's not purely anatomic. There's also inherent biologic factors uh, that we don't know how to measure right now. I'm sure the genetics will be sorted out someday. Um, but there are studies that are published, including one we've done here, that does show in general the more bowel in the field and the more dose it gets, the higher the likelihood of enteritis. Mm -hmm. um, so we do everything we can to minimize it. The related question, which is also one we, we discuss frequently, um, are the patients with, with IBD, the, the Crohn's and the UC patients. Um, we always worry about those patients, and um, everybody has anecdotes of increased toxicity with radiation in, in IBD patients. I, this is a literature I've, I've looked at several times over the years, and the problem with it is they're mainly case reports, and there's very rarely a denominator. Um, talking about all of the, the, the IBD patients who don't have excess toxicity. I've, at this point, treated quite a few of them, um, and I'm becoming more and more comfortable that we don't have to worry about them so much, the more, the, the more experience that I get. Um, what the literature will say is people with a history of, of either Crohn's or UC, although UC seems to be worse for radiation, um, that has been relatively quiescent, that has had flares on and off over the years, do pretty well with radiation. But people who are having much more virulent disease, much more active disease, are the ones that can get into a lot of trouble with radiation. Um, that's what the literature says. I, I have to say, in my own experience, I haven't really treated patients with rip-roaring flares of IBD during treatment. But the ones who've been even on, you know, low-dose misalamine and, but are generally well compensated have gotten through radiation okay. Well, the, the people that develop cancer with ulcerative colitis are not the people with the aggressive flares because they, the people with the aggressive flares, we operate on after a year or two. It's the person who has low-grade uh, symptoms for 10 and 20 years. And then they come to us with dysplasia. They're only going maybe twice a day. Um, one of the things that we see, we, we talk about imaging and how much better the pictures have gotten, but it seems that all the IBD patients that we see, and we shared one uh, in consult, have swollen lymph nodes. So you can't tell whether it's a stage three or, or more likely that it's a inflammatory node. Also measuring depth of invasion 
is impossible. So if we have a patient that looks like they have a stage two or stage three rectal cancer, would you recommend that they be diverted and then have the neoadjuvant therapy before surgery? Or would you not necessarily trust the imaging and have us take it out and then decide on the post-operative therapy yeah, afterwards? I, I don't think we, I think that's a great question. And I think both of those strategies are totally reasonable and, and we don't really have a, a, a fixed um, approach. It, these patients are, you know, we also see the nose not just in the, you know, as you know, that the path reports on these patients are, are incredible because the pathologists will report on, on over 100 lymph nodes. Right. Um, because they're so enlarged, they're so easy to find. Um, they're really, a, you know, a different population in that way. I remember one we had that I think had like one out of 80 positive lymph nodes. Um, what do you do with a patient like that? And I feel bad for the pathology resident that had to do those all those, um, those studies, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes we are pretty confident. Um, I, I think, you know, we, you know, ultrasound may be helpful where MRI isn't to tell if it's a T3 tumor. The lymph nodes are, are really hard, but, you know, sometimes they'll have features that are more suggestive of malignant involvement, not just size, but shape and morphology and, you know, necrotic centers and other things that may help distinguish. Um, PET probably will not be helpful in this population, unfortunately. Um, so I think we have had cases where it looks suspicious enough that we've gone ahead and done neoadjuvant chemoradiation and been comfortable with that. And I think for selected cases... That's great, but I think those we really don't know, you know, we don't want to be radiating patients with T2, you know, N0 or lower disease. Right. Um, and so I'm very comfortable treating, going ahead doing the surgery and, and treating based on, on pathology. Mm-hmm. You know, in the old days when we did this more frequently, we would, we would, you know, use techniques that are less common now, like you mentioned earlier, omentum to keep the small bowel out of the pelvis, or sometimes we used to use mesh, haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, again, because we're doing so much more preoperatively these days. But I think in a case like this, where you're, th- where you're thinking they could get upstaged at surgery and radiation may be part of the plan, you know, anything we can do to keep the small bowel out of the field is likely to be helpful. Right, so have the surgeon, uh, on the chance that they might need radiation, exclude the pelvis, uh, what about patients with Crohn's disease that get cancer and they have multiple fistulas? Uh, we, they are rare, thankfully, but we see cancers in Crohn's fistulas and cancers in non-Crohn's fistulas. What about the patient with the, the Crohn's fistulas and an adenocarcinoma in the rectum or anus? We've had several of these together, and I think these are some of our most difficult patients, actually, for two reasons. One is they they definitely do have a harder time getting through treatment. Um, Again, this isn't something people write about that it's easy to find in the literature, but I think if you ask anybody who's had experience treating these patients, um, most would would agree. Um, And then to add insult to injury, we often can't control the cancers that are in these fistulas, and and the surgery to get around the whole fistula I know can be very difficult. Right. and so this is, 
you know, this is a population that probably needs something beyond what we're doing right now because they both have a hard time getting through treatment and then don't have as good results as our other patients. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish I had something better to say. The, the, those are probably the population that I worry the most about. So preoperative diversion, it seems, is a logical idea. Yes. Uh, the chemo radiation with the wider field for you. What happens with us when we go to surgery, we always have to reconstruct them with a flap because between the wide field, the IBD with some immunosuppression, and the uh, radiation, they, no one ever heals. Uh, so it is uh, challenging. And then even if they don't have IBD, historically had a poor prognosis, but I'm not too sure that's because we're not aggressive enough. But the ones with IBD, we've gotten people through and we have some cures, but I, I, I agree with it. It's a, it's a tough group. and. It, and in part, we find the, the cancers late because they literally hide in these chronic fistulas, which many Crohn's patients have. Well, great, Harvey. That was super. I want to thank you for taking the time. And we'll try to keep the patient problems right down the middle, not these colitis and Crohn's patients. But unfortunately, here at the Brigham, we don't seem to attract the, the routine. So great. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. So this is a discussion this afternoon, Jeff, about colon cancer, rectal cancer, and inflammatory bowel disease. Because we see with our inflammatory bowel disease uh, unit, which is large and expanding and robust, uh, uh, more and more of these patients. And in particular, uh, it seems that there's two types of patients, and we can talk about this, that uh, come to us, uh, or come to you, per se, in that... They, some have had their surgery, the colon's been removed, and, and we talked to Harvey Mammon about radiation and the tolerability of radiation in patients with colitis, but all that's done, and they come to you with usually an endileostomy if it's a colitis patient. And then there are those who may have metastatic disease, and then there's the occasional Crohn's patient that uh, has had uh, their surgery, but we don't take out all the colon and rectum in, there, in, in those patients, and they have uh, no ostomy in so how, when they come to you, what do you take into consideration when you start their adjuvant therapy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately you still have to consider the extent of their disease. So someone who has node-positive colon cancer, you still want to try to be able to give them chemotherapy um, because we know their risk of recurrence with surgery alone can be 50% or greater, um, depending how many nodes and the extent of bowel involvement. And so you want to try to get chemotherapy in those patients. You know, if they've had a total colectomy, it's a little easier because, and, and it's also a colitis patient because you're affecting the bowel less, obviously. Um, and the small bowel, I mean, some will have some ileal involvement, so, but that's most of what's involved has been removed if, if they had pan colitis. Um, the classic teaching is patients with ulcerative colitis uh, don't tolerate chemotherapy as well, particularly fluoroprimidine and probably irinotecan. Um, but at the same time, it's all relative. There are people who tolerate it totally fine, and there are people who have tougher time that you certainly need much more aggressive dose reductions than, than other patients. And so I still want to try to give them chemotherapy. I, in a patient who was node positive who had a total colectomy, I would give them Folfox. 
uh, again, they may not have their bowel and any intact bowel left. Um, so that may be easier. But if it's a patient with metastatic disease, for example, where the bowel is still intact, I would start with Folfox. I might start with a little bit of a dose reduction, and if they tolerate well, then escalate back to sort of the standard dose. Um, and, and again, I've given arinotecan to those patients too, and some will do well and some won't do well. There are patients who don't have ulcer clays who have tougher time with, with the chemotherapies similarly. So the, uh, what is the uh, rate of diarrhea with the fluoroprimidines? Backing up a little bit, there's going to be patients even regardless of whether they have ulcer clays that have deficiencies in the enzymes that help with the processing and and breakdown of, of uh, fluoroprimidines, so DPD deficiency or thymolysynthase uh, polymorphisms. And, you know, that total rate is probably on the order of about 5% who have sort of levels that have really significant diarrhea. There's been all this sort of discussion over the years, should we prospectively test patients? And some of it is by the time you get the test back, you already want to start treatment. And so it's really a clinical you know, revelation if someone has really severe diarrhea. So there's those patients, and I, I don't know of an association with IBD that those people would have a higher rate of those. Mm -hmm. If you take sort of everyone with 5-FU, you know, significant diarrhea where we would call it grade 3 where they need IV fluids is really low. I mean, but as a fluoroprimidine alone, you know, it's only in the order of 5 to less than 10%. Diarrhea that hospitalizes patients is really low with a fluoroprimidine alone, less than 1%. For the IBD patients, you know, it may be a little bit higher, but I would say if it's 50% higher than the normal rate, that's probably a lot. Those are where you need IV fluids and, and or hospitalizations. Diarrhea that's grade 2 is still fairly troublesome to the patient because if you go a bunch of times and start having, you know, irritation of your uh, buttock area that, that requires creams and cyst baths and things like that, that's obviously quality of life issue. And, and again, I think those are relatively higher, but the rate is still probably, you know, grade two is probably not more than 20%. So you, if you're nervous about that, you say you start at a, a lower dose, about how much, 20%, 25%? Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably start in someone, because uh, this also does come up with IBD patients who you may give, where you really are worried about them prior to their surgery, and you may do upfront chemotherapy and or radiation. I know, we, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy of radiation, but some people have big bulky tumors that you do need to do something to try to downsize them a little. And, and I would probably start off with 25% dose reduction initially, and then try to, you know, if they do fine, escalate it up. Yeah. Because again, it is curative intent therapy, and since some patients really will tolerate it perfectly well, you, you don't want to decrease their chance of cure Right. Uh, in those situations. One of the things that when we review these patients at conference that's frustrating is that all the lymph nodes are enlarged. And it, it seems that the preoperative imaging is uh, not very helpful at all because every lymph node is enlarged, particularly in the colitis patients. Uh, it makes it a little bit difficult to figure out who needs preoperative chemoradiation therapy for the rectal cancers. And the patient that we shared... Um, it was an upper rectal cancer, and it was was small, so we did the proctocolectomy uh, first with an endoleostomy, uh, and then he had uh, two out of, uh, actually it was 50 nodes in the rectosigmoid specimen and then 90 nodes in the total colectomy specimen. And so uh, of 100, 
30 nodes, we had a good sample mm -hmm. uh, with two positive. Do you feel or do you have you seen that this is a more aggressive type tumor on presentation or in terms of recurrence? In other words... Um, yeah, I don't know if I've seen... I, so, you know, anecdotal amount of experience, I'm not sure I think of this as patients have a higher risk of recurrence. You know, I'm not sure the literature supports that. I don't know if you've seen higher recurrence rates with that, but I, I don't, I'm not sure the literature says that there's necessarily a higher risk of recurrence for these patients, uh, you know, stage for stage. Correct. Right? And, and, you know, to some degree, as you know, the difficulty in initially diagnosing these patients, because they don't start as the, even though they get frequent colonoscopy, they don't start as a flat polyp, I mean, as a, as a polypoid lesion, they start as a flat lesion that can be missed, the reason for the sort of random biopsies or to try to find areas of dysplasia. But, you know, sometimes these are sort of brewing, despite really active screening, can be brewing a little longer. And, and as you know, there's also issues with compliance with, with active screening for these patients uh, to some degree. So, you know, stage for stage, I, I think their prognosis is probably similar. Right. Um, but some of them do present a little later, just despite even getting surveillances because of the difficulty initially diagnosed. I think those techniques are improving to try to find areas of dysplasia and flat polyps. Yeah, the only thing I've uh, experienced is that if they present with severe dysplasia, it seems that they can rapidly advance to cancer and um, even metastatic disease if they delay a year uh, so that it's, it's uh, atypical of, uh, of, let's say, a polyp to... Uh, cancer uh, patient without ulcerative colitis. Again, the rapidity uh, of advancing to metastatic disease. But I agree with you. Once you get it out, if it's if if it's stage three disease, it's stage three disease. And then, this is not the the uh, patient we're discussing today. But some of the Crohn's patients get cancers in these fistula and fissures. Have you treated a few of those? And if you have, have you had difficulty in uh, again giving the chemo or because I think a lot of those patients, we end up usually diverting them first, just mm -hmm. so they can actually tolerate the chemo. Yeah, I mean, I think therapy. that the few times I've seen that, or fistulas from other reasons. I mean, there's obviously other conditions that cause fistulas. You know, doing a diversion certainly helps them because of the. You know, if you start having bad diarrhea, it becomes even more problematic. So those patients, I do think, benefit from a diversion initially, and they are certainly more complicated. I'm sure they're more complicated operatively too. Um, to understand the extent it has to be removed. And, but I can't say I, I remember particular cases that were more challenging, particularly if they've been diverted. Well, great. This, uh, uh, again, we, we're seeing more and more of these patients yeah, uh, here yeah. at our institution with our uh, great GI group. And, um, uh, you know, they're always a challenge both diagnostically and, and then getting them through the therapy. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think it's such an important topic because, you know, for most people, they're going to see very few of these cases. So most practitioners, if they see, you know, one ulcerative colitis every year or two, that's probably a lot. And so, again, trying to understand how to manage it. And I think we need probably better guidelines. The problem is they are infrequent enough to really have, you know, definitive studies a little challenging. Thank you to our guests and all for listening to this Colon and Rectal Cancer Care podcast. Remember, DanaFarberPodcast.com. Once you're there, you can visit the episode library to access any references we discussed in the show. We also would like to hear from you in the blog's comments section. 
and may even feature your message in an upcoming episode. From the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, we'll see you next time.